Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey, I'm Paul Stevenson, and this is, of course, the ultimate classic rock podcast that says that my music is better than yours. Make sure to subscribe on your podcast app right now so that you don't miss a single episode because I've got some great guests lined up for you in coming weeks. A big shout out as well to Pantheon Podcast Network. Pantheon Podcasts hosts some incredible music podcasts from all genres and styles, including the official Metallica podcast. Yes, the Metallica Report is the band's only official podcast, and you can only get that on the Pantheon Podcast Network, as well as so many other great shows like my friends Mac and Action Jackson on the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. There's Joe from Play That Rock and Roll podcast, Tom and Zeus on Shout It Out Loud, and of course, the Stephanie's on Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes. Loads of great shows. Please do go and check them all out on the Pantheon Podcast Network. But today then, I've got a great guest for you on the show, a man who unbelievably is 70 years old. He'd pass as a man in his 40s or, well, early 50s at worst, I tell you. He's in great shape. He is one of the greatest drummers of the last 40 years. Rolling Stone ranked him in the top 100 of all time. Modern Drummer magazine ranked him the number one session drummer in the world five times. And Drum magazine ranked him the number one session drummer three times as well. And a quick glance at his recording history shows you the array of amazing talent who've trusted him on their records. From John Fogarty to Celine Dion, there's Tony Iommi and Bob Seger, the Smashing Pumpkins to Leonard Skinner, Meatloaf and Joe Satriani, Jerry Lee Lewis, the famous Highwaymen, you know, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson. Honestly, that is just the tip of the iceberg. He's played with McCartney and Ringo, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, Sting, Billy Gibbons, Rod Stewart, Elton John, Dave Grant. I mean, seriously, this is a true legend. The guy is a true drumming legend. And he tells such amazing, inspiring stories, too. 
he got his first real break in the business with, well, a little-known hit album called American Fool that contained another little-known single called Jack and Diane, working with a little-known guy called John Cougar Mellencamp. You may, have, you may have heard of them. Anyway, I am, of course, talking about the wonderful Kenny Aronoff. Kenny is an amazing guest and he's a great storyteller and in fact hosts his own podcast as well, so please do go and check that out as well where he speaks to his rock and roll friends. But in this interview you're going to hear about his friendship with another drumming legend, the late great Rush's Neil Peart, his time working with John Mellencamp of course, the hits, the difficult working environment and how he made the jump into the session world, his time with Credence legend John Fogarty, the Smashing Pumpkins, Tony Iommi and of course that incredible night, the evening with Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. So please enjoy this chat with the amazing Kenny Aronoff. Before we get started, I want to say that your book, Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll, came out a few years ago. It's absolutely fantastic. You've got loads of brilliant stories in there, really in-depth, some brilliant pictures and things like that in there. So we're going to touch on certain little bits from that, but I recommend everybody to check out that book, Sex, Drums and Rock and Roll, because it is brilliant. And I want to say as well that the foreword was written by the legend that was Neil Peart. I mean, if there's anyone going to write a foreword for a drummer, then he's got to be up there at the top of the list, hasn't he? How did all that come about? Well, Neil and I had worked together when he was producing the Buddy Rich big band, uh, Burning for Buddy Rich. And it was a two CDs on Atlantic Records. And I was in the early 90s. And he, um, I was called by uh, Kathy Rich, Buddy's daughter, to be part of that recording. And Neil was producing. So I met him on that. And then, we, I mean, he was very, 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 very nice, very sweet, very focused, knew what he wanted to do. And that was done in New York. But... Later that year, I was recording up at Morin Heights, which was a studio where Rush had recorded and all kinds of bands about a, maybe an hour outside of Montreal. And I was recording with Corey Hart. And all of a sudden, I see Neil's head pop through the door, very hum- humbly going, trying to get my attention. I went, Neil, what are you doing here? Had no idea that they had worked there a lot. I didn't think about it at the time. And then he asked me if I could play percussion with him on like eight or 16 measures of a pick up the pieces that Steve Ferroni had played drums on. Steve didn't want to do a drum solo and Neil thought it'd be cool if we did a whole percussion thing together. And we did. And I'd done a lot of percussion and orchestrating that sort of thing on Mellencamp records. So I kind of knew you start from, you can start from low frequencies. You start working your way up through percussion till you get the high frequencies and, I was sharing those ideas with Neil and we had an incredible time. We talked about me being the ball bandito brothers. And then I went to his house and uh, either that day, I think later that day and, and we listened to the whole record and drank some scotch and we became very good friends. Yeah. And, uh, and then when it was time for me to get somebody to, to um, do the forward of the book, I wanted somebody that understood me. Now he and I both are into jazz both ended up as rock play- drummers, and both of us are very into sports. And um, I thought this guy will understand me on those levels. And he asked me to send him three chapters, and he said, "This is great." So he wrote the forward, and it was pretty close to when he was diagnosed with cancer. You know, oh. yeah. So I felt honored. Oh, you know, 
Well, it's, it's, like I said, everyone check out the book. It is fantastic to read and you'll hear more stories in there than, than we can get through on a, a little interview like this. But uh, definitely check out Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll. So you mentioned Mellencamp quickly there. We have to start there, really, don't we? I mean, a long and fruitful career, uh, an association with John and some fantastic hits, some great records, that sort of thing. But first off, what was it like working with John in the studio, creating songs and, and putting records together? Well, there was a lot of pressure on us because he had a lot of pressure on him. He'd already lost his record deal. And the, and, the, and the first record that came out where he had a record deal, they changed his name from John Mellencamp, which is his family name or given name, to yeah. Johnny Cougar, and he was not happy with that. And when the record came out, it didn't do well. He lost his deal in one year. So he, when he finally got another deal, he was adamant about being successful. And we would rehearse from uh, 11 in the morning till 5 at night, uh, and then take a dinner break for two hours and work from seven to 11, five days a week, like a business. Wow. And uh, his whole thing, one day he walked in the studio after we'd had a big success with American Fool, a number one and number two hit single in the top 100 on the Billboard charts, which is, those are the charts. When you're number one on those charts, you're number one. It's There's a lot, yeah. of, a lot of charts and people say, I've had 20 number one hits. But the charts don't mean anything. This was the this is where you're competing with the Rolling Stones, Elton John, the Please, Tom Petty, you know, whoever is the greatest, and you're competing with the industry on all formats. So if you're yeah. number one on that top 100, you are literally number one in the country, if not the world. So after that record, John came in one day and went, "Listen, you guys, I need ideas." I need ideas. I need hits. I need pe people to come up with innovative and creative ideas to make my songs become hits on the radio. Because the North Star, and I figured this out when I got after I got fired after being in the band for five weeks from making that record, nothing matters from what if it did. Suddenly I realized, oh my God, this is not about me at all. This is about me getting a song on the radio. What is my contribution? To that song, to that artist, what can I do as a drummer and a person to get that song on the radio to be number one? That's Super Bowl mentality. You're not thinking about you. You're thinking about the team, the song, the artist. It's not about me. That was a huge revelation for me. And uh, that is what made me who I became. So... Yeah, he was right. I need ideas to get these songs on the radio to have hits. And he said, Kenny, if somebody has a better drum beat than what you're playing, you play it. And everybody in this band, you don't own your instruments. We all play each other's instruments. Whatever it takes to get a number one hit. And he walked out of the room and I thought, what a jerk. But he was right. He was right. He says, what do we as a group need to do to get on the radio and beat out Tom Petty and Billy Joel and Sting and the police and Springsteen and Elton John. I mean, there's only 10 slots in the top 10. So to be number one, you're telling everybody, wow, you just blew everybody out. So he, he was right in that regard. And that was, so there was a lot of pressure all the time, all the time, whether it was in the studio or on stage to be great. And we went from playing in front of, you know, a thousand people to selling out arenas all around America, yeah. double nights, two nights in a row, Madison Square Garden, two nights, no opening act, just us, 360 degrees, flying around in private jets. But this didn't come from, from, this came from 
hard work, self-discipline, perseverance, and never taking your foot off the gas. You just, we went eight years nonstop, you know, rehearse for, you know, John would write the songs and we'd have to come up with parts to make those songs great as a team. I mean, it always went to me first. Like, what do you got, Aronoff? After listening to a song once, and I'd be like, and all, and he admitted they all sounded the same. Acoustic guitar, you know, and I'd have to come up with, a, I came up with a method, how to come up with creative ideas. But it was a lot of pressure. And then, you know, we we would do, he would write songs, we'd arrange the songs, go in the studio, rehearse them, throw songs out, regroup, do it again. That would take a year. Mix, master. Then we do promotion, yeah. make videos, do uh, interviews and stuff for about a month or so. Then rehearse for tour, then go on tour. That's two years. Take a month off and start again. We did that for four consecutive records, and we ended up playing in, in arenas. And we were set up to possibly go into stadiums, but John quit the music business for about three years. He said, I've had enough. He was fried. And um, yeah. I was that was a real pivotal point for me because when he quit, and it was at the last show of the Lonesome Jubilee Tour, we just sold out a Summerfest. He says, he throws a bonus check at me back when they gave bonuses out. And he said, uh, man, I'm quitting the music business for three years. Don't spend it in one place. I went, what? I was freaking out. I'd just gotten divorced. Yeah. And I had, you know, expenses. And I went, wow, if that guy doesn't work, I don't work. I said, that'll never happen again. Well, I decided... All right. The next day I woke up and went, all right, he's not working, but I'm going to work with all the other people that are out there that are big. And I started going to Nash, uh, no, LA and started doing sessions. And eventually I got in to the scene where I had drums in New York, Nashville, LA, Indiana, where I lived, Japan and Germany. And eventually people would fly me all over the world to make records and ended up playing on the last I counted was 300 million records sold. You know, bats, you know, I got some gold records here that <laughs> Meatloaf up there, yeah. that sold 400 million records. And then there's a Celine Dion record right there that sold basically 400 million records. Labels making 85 <laughs> cents in a dollar, you do the math. That's a lot of money yeah. they can reinvest in new artists. Well, that whole thing just completely went away. That's why I moved everything to L.A. And I, you're in my studio, Uncommon Studios L.A., because I have a thing called adapt or die in any business. doesn't matter if you're on a basketball court or, you know, playing sports or on a, a rock and roll stage or you're in a corporate boardroom meeting. You know, you have to come up with creative and innovative ideas to solve, yep. come up with solutions to problems, as I did for Jack and Diane, that makes the company millions of dollars. And if you don't, you're going to lose your place. You're going to be not relevant and you will... That's why I say adapt or die. Or die. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just jumping back, you mentioned Jack and Diane there. We have to touch on that. I mean, an incredible song. It's not a, not a normal song in any way. It starts, it stops. It's got different instrumentation. The claps are in there. It's it's a very strange, structured song. And and you've got the drum machine on there as well. So so take us through the, the process of, of putting that one together. And, and to, to, get, to begin with, how was your feelings about working with the drum machine? Was it your choice or was it kind of something you were told that was going to happen? It wasn't my choice. Uh, I walk into the room was the most difficult record I've ever made in my life and that record won two mm -hmm. Grammys and sold millions we spent <laughs> nine weeks at Criteria 
studios in, in um, you know, Miami and basically walked out with not, uh, four songs. Two guys got fired. I almost got a fist fight with John because he was being a complete idiot to me. And, um, and he, uh, I walk in one day and the co-producers got a, a metal box. And I went, hey, Don, what's that? And he goes, oh, this is uh, the Bee Gees are using it next door. It's the newest thing. It's called the Lin One Drum Machine. I went, Drum Machine? Oh my God, that replaces drummers. And so that was a moment where I got into, I didn't realize it, it was like survival. It's not fight or flight. For me, it was fight or fight. I grabbed the machine and this is an adapter die situation. I grabbed the machine, grabbed the manual and I go, I'm going to be a part of this new technology. Yeah, if I'd gone like and that. sulked and been like, God, woe is me. I wouldn't have programmed that thing. Somebody else would have programmed so I just want to be part of it. So I get the manual and I basically program what I was playing on the drum set. But you have to remember, this is a new technology, a new sound. So, and in the air tonight with Phil Collins had already been on, was already on the radio. And that was exactly mm -hmm. drum machine and drums. So I program this, I give it back to them. It's got eight outputs. The Lin one had eight outputs. They could bring every fader up on the board and they were mixing stuff. And I'm thinking, in the lounge, I'm like, God, what's going on? Am I being, are the drummers being replaced by machines? Is that what's happening? Am I in the horse and buggy business? And the car showed up, you know, it's like, and you're like, Hey, guess what? Bye bye. You know? And two hours later I get summoned into the control room and John goes, Hey dude, we need a drum solo or a drum break right here after the second chorus. And I'm crapping in my pants, but I'd learned my lesson two years prior when I'd gotten fired. I went, I kept going, save the song, save your career, serve the song, serve the artist, serve the band, serve the producer, serve everybody. What can I do to get this song on the record, on the record? Because this song was not on the record. Cool wow. song, very unique. It's just a kind of acoustic song. Great words, lyrics. But we had to come up with a way to arrange it and present it that had relevance. So I think I we spent all day getting drum sounds because back then they put drums in vocal booths. They could control the sound better. Now John wants the biggest sound in the world. We put it in a big room, but nobody knew where to put the mics. Obviously, the close mics, the overheads. But where do you put the room mics? And then what kind of chain of EQ and compression and effects do you do? It took all day to figure this out. Meanwhile, I'm wow. thinking, come up with a, a, a drum part that's going to save this song. So now it's my moment. I'm crapping in my pants. And the machine's going, goose, goose, goose. Bam, boosh, doosh, doo. Bam, boosh, doosh, doo. Kablam! Kick drum on the and of three, flam on the snare drum on four, and I stopped. And I looked in the control room to get some validation. And I had nine guys going like this. So that's 18 thumbs. <laughs> so, you know, my first thought was I still got my job. That's what I thought. Yes. <laughs> so then I thought, well, everybody goes down the drums. I'm going to go up the drums. So I was mimicking what the bass drum was doing, which is one, two, three, four, uh, 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 four, one, uh, uh, four. And I hit a dead end. Those all, no, John asked me to come in. Cortisol levels go up, adrenaline goes up. I'm scared. I'm going to be fired again. <laughs> and I got half the people telling me what to do and half the people telling me not what to do. Suddenly light off 
a light went off in my head. I went, it's up to you, buddy. It's all on you to save your career. I walked out to the big room. I looked at the drums. I went, this is like the World Series. And you're up to bat. You hit a home run, you're the hero. You strike out, you're the loser. That's the way I looked at it. So I'm 40 feet away from my drum. I'm going, what are you going to play, Kenny? I'm 30 feet. I like, I don't know. I'm like 20 feet, dude. This is your career. 10 feet. I don't know what I'm going to play. I get to the drums. I put my headphones on. I'm looking at them. Look at the drums. And all of a sudden, thank God, a light went off in my head. I went, look, I have no idea what to do different. So why don't you use what you've already been doing? And in a nutshell, I took that beat that I was playing. I went up the tom-toms, but instead of starting on one, I moved the whole thing over one-eighth note. I don't know why I came up with that. Maybe it was from all the drum books I was working out of. But I went one, two, three, four, one, uh, uh, uh. And by the time I got there, John's hitting talk back, hit a cymbal. One, two, three, uh, one, two, three, boom, blam, uh, 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 hit the cymbal. Now I'm at the top of the room. I just said, I'm going to take what Phil Collins used, ran out of drums, so I put it, made a triplet, boom, 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 touchdown. Everybody loved it. Mick Ronson from David Bowie's band was in there watching us record. He's a friend of John's. He suggested that Kenny keep playing a beat and let everybody sing some sort of acapella thing. So let it rock. So let it roll. Let the Bible Belt come save my soul. So let it rock. So let it, it was this big anthem thing. So I didn't even hear that. John just said, come on, keep playing a beat. So I started by playing 16th notes on the hi-hat and going, he goes, too much hi-hat. That was his way of talking, scream at you. Too much hi-hat. So I went, all right, mofo. And I didn't play any hi-hat. Play some hi-hat. So (laughs) I had been listening to Steve Gadd playing on a Chick Corea album and a song called Lenora. And he was doing... This thing we go, and he hit the floor tom on beat four. That's why I came up. Steve Gadd playing with a jazz artist influenced me to come up with boom, boom, floor tom and snare drum. So when I played the hi hat on three E and uh, it opened up. Boom, 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 Touchdown. I didn't even hear the end result till the song was done, mastered, and recorded. It was this mammoth thing. So I'm just grateful the song got on the record. Now, back then, they released the first single. Back then, what they do is they play all the songs on top 100 radio, and people call up and say, yeah, I like that song. And people can call up and voice their opinion, and they start rating. People wanted Hurt So Good. They released Hurt So Good. Hurt So Goes flying up the charts, hits number two. For six weeks, we couldn't beat out either the Tiger. But, you know, Rocky <laughs> Rocky One was out. So the movie is selling the record. The record's selling the movie. So there's no way we're going to beat out either the Tiger. 
So they st- they start seeing that Jack and Diane is testing so high. Everybody likes that song. They'll play it specifically in certain markets, maybe New York, Seattle, Boston, whatever. Test it so high. They release it as the second single as Jack and Diane goes down to three and four. Release Jack and Diane. Now, we're like, really? That's your next single? Jack and Diane goes flying all the way, hits number one. Hurts So Good goes back up. Now we got two songs in the top 10. We're all over MTV. Next thing you know, on Saturday Night Live, you know, all the TV shows, Solid Gold, uh, you know, uh, Dick Clark, you name it. We're on it. SCTV up in Canada. John's career completely blows up. My career is launched. Who, who's that drummer? And the room I was in, at Chateau Marmont Hotel on Sunset, when I got fired two years ago, I was in that same room when that song went to number one. And here's wow. here's what I did. I celebrated for two seconds, and then I went, holy shit, I'm not number one. I got to do it again. How am I going to do it again? He hasn't written a song yet. I got to wait for John to write a song, and then I got to come up with a great drum part to prove that I'm a great drummer. That was what's in my mind. It's like a running back in football. They get a touchdown, they're immediately like, I need to do this again to show people that I'm really good. It's not like a one-off deal. So I never I never bought that number one thing. I was grateful, uh, but I was like, I got to do it again. What's next? What do I do? I need to practice. How can I get better? You know, I have a saying, it goes like this. I'll never be as great as I want to be. But I'm willing to spend my entire life trying to be as great as I can be. I mean, that's just like like a running back in football. They don't score touchdowns every time they get the ball. Sometimes they do. Sometimes five yards, sometimes zero. Sometimes minus two, sometimes fumble. Sometimes they break their leg in preseason and they're out. But they come back because they love football. I'm a running back in the music business. I just keep going <laughs> in the end zone, in the end zone. Give me it again. Try again. Work hard. Make it. Work yeah. hard. Go, go, go. Yeah. And that's how you build. Incredible. That's how you build a career. Incredible stuff. It sounds it sounds like you, you're so driven as well. And it's such a, an environment for that because by the sounds of it, John was a bit of a taskmaster as well. And you're working and you're pushing yourselves mm-hmm. and you, between you and the group and John and, and everyone is really trying to bring out the best in everybody. And that's, it just sounds like almost the best way to start a career because from that point on, you can only go and, and keep developing and pushing yourself. Well, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, is that you either get it or you don't. Yes. You know, uh, some people would gone like, I'm out of here. And two guys did quit in the making of American Fool after I'd been in two years. They went, this is it's not worth it. Not me. It, I'm not saying it was enjoyable. I mean, it was enjoyable times, but it was tough. But I recognized this is incredible. I'll mm-hmm. be playing with John real soon uh, for a big event at the Indianapolis Stadium, the Colts Stadium, Indianapolis. I go up to him and hug him and say, I mean, I've done, I did the Kennedy Center Honors with him and I've done Music Cares. I'm always grateful. Man, I learned so much by being around him and watching how he handled things. Learned so much. It's, I, I won't even list it. It was just incredible. Totally invaluable. At the time, I didn't realize everything I was learning, but I see it now. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And also going yeah. through that type of experience, fighting 
to become great and being part of having a leader that didn't drink, didn't do drugs, totally clear-minded, you know, and just driven everything from what you wear, the way we look on stage, the way we move, being very aware of the brand before we even knew what that word meant. And being around that was, like you said, was an incredible foundation to deal with all kinds of things from that point on the easiest things and the hardest things. Absolutely. And then you mentioned, obviously, following on from, from John deciding to take a break from the music business, that you, you decided you were going to put your efforts into, into serving loads of different people and becoming um, the best session drummer out there. And you wouldn't commit to just one person again. It would be all the different people. And it was Don Was, wasn't it, that really helped you get your way into that kind of way of working? Yes. Uh, I was working with Don Was. He called me up and asked me if I could do a Bob Dylan record, and then Bob was on tour, so I'm like freaking out. Are you kidding me? And But then Bob couldn't do it because he was on tour for a while. Then he says, well, how about Iggy Pop? I'm like, are you kidding me? Yeah, and I'm recording an Iggy Pop record, and Don, who was, he had, he went to the Grammys. Uh, you know, I, I was like so focused on just drums, Iggy Pop, and all of a sudden, I walk in one day and says, "We're done." So, oh, he had to go to the Grammys. We well, we recorded a little bit, and then he went to the Grammys, and he wins two Grammys: one for <laughs> "Nick of Time" with uh, Bonnie Raitt, which he, Bonnie which Raitt, was yeah. her comeback record, and then he won uh, "Love Shack" for the B52s. He produced that, and all of a sudden, Don's got two Grammys. There's our guy, barefoot, glasses, and uh, he comes back, and next thing you know, he said, "Hey, you want to record?" a Bob Seger record. Yeah. Hey, you want to record uh, Elton John four songs? Yeah. And it went on and on and on. And all of a sudden, Don blew up, and I was right there with him. The High Women, which is Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings. Movie soundtracks. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And B.B. Um, King and Bonnie Raitt uh, at the same time doing a song for Air America. I mean, it was unbelievable. And all of a sudden, my cred went up outside of John Mellencamp, and I suddenly realized I had two careers. And there's where the conflict came in, because I was on a very small retainer. I took myself off retainer with the idea that if he calls, I'm not on retainer anymore. And uh, he did call. I was doing a Little Feet record. Uh, the Little Feet band, uh, Richie Haywood, the, the incredible drummer who was playing with Eric Clapton, they got me to play with them, and we were backing up like the Madonna of um, Sweden. She was a, a, a megastar stadium. So we did that record and I get a call, that, you know, from John's uh, right hand man said that John needs you this Thursday. I said, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm working two weeks with little feet. He says, well, John says, well, look, I, you know, you can do that stuff, but when I need you, I need you. I totally get it. But I said, John, they moved their entire schedule to accommodate me. And they built this whole session around me. I can't leave. And so yeah. we just, I get it. I mean, John wanted a drummer that was accessible 24-7. And I was becoming that guy that was not accessible 24-7. And eventually, you know, we just parted ways. I remember uh, Leland Sklar saying that um, sometimes he kind of wished that he was part of a band and he was like almost like Flea where he had one band and he travelled and he only had to learn those songs rather than everybody else's songs and that sort of thing. I mean, uh, he's had an incredible career, same as you, but do, do you sometimes wish that you were part of a band in that way that you didn't have to float between everything or did 
would you not have got the kind of buzz that you got from doing what you did with so many different people and so many different genres and styles and, and places like that? Oh, I definitely think I, I like playing with everybody. You know, even when I was in the Mellencamp band, as big as we were, when I started recording with like Brian Setzer or Belinda Carlisle, uh, you know, we did Heaven on Earth, her first number one hit single outside of the Go-Go's. Yeah. I mean, that was such a rush. Or Bob Seger or, you know, going on tour with, you know, the Smashing Pumpkins. Uh, recording with John Fogarty, you know, I mean, oh man, or Joe Cocker. I mean, this is like incredible. So yeah, I want both. <laughs> I want both, you know, <laughs> I like playing with lots and lots of different people because it's stimulating. It makes me feel good mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually. So yeah. Uh, I don't know if Lee would have been happy with just one band. Sure. I'd love to have been in Led Zeppelin. Yeah. But I think I still <laughs> would have always wanted to do other things. It's just the way I'm yeah. wired. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's worked for you. You've thrown out even more names there. Let's touch on a couple of them. I mean, John Fogarty, absolute legend, as you said. Uh, playing with someone like that who's got such a rich history um, before you join him and everyone knows how he sounds and how Credence sounded and things like that. So so what was it like when you joined John and, and you were backing up him? What, what advice or what instruction did he give to you? Well, the thing about John, I mean, he was my hero. I was just a, no, I was a kid, a teenager, you know, uh, you know, listening to Credence, you know, yeah. almost went to Woodstock. I only grew up three and a half hours away and I missed it. But man, so when I get the call, I had no idea, but I was the 30th drummer after five years wow. of recording his record, Blue Moon Swamp, 30th drummer. Somebody finally recommends Kenny Aronoff. And uh, I was told not to even bring my drums. I'm like, really? And I got there. <laughs> And he would tune the snare drum, and it was my favorite snare drum, Superphonic 400 Ludwig 5x14, which I ended up uh, creating my my signature <laughs> series, snare drums. That's a 6x14. They're only making 25 of them, 40 years being with Tama. Hand engraved. It's my tattoo engraved around that, that drum. But anyway, the first edition was a 5x14, and um, that was a model off of his favorite snare drum, the Superphonic 400 Ludwig. But he would tune his kick drum and snare drum and have somebody tune the toms. We, we'd play a very simple song. We'd play it twice. It was just bass, guitar, and him singing and me. Go in and listen to two takes. Let me make a few suggestions. Go out, do two more. Come back and listen. Two more. Come back. After eight takes, I went, that's pretty damn good, John. I think we got it. He went, no, nah, I think we'll, we'll revisit that a little bit longer. So we do it for three and a half hours, then have a lunch break, then go to the next song. At the end of the day, he goes, Kenny, you're the drummer I've been looking for my entire life. Wow. You come, yeah, exactly. Wow. And now you have to understand, he's a genius. He writes the songs, writes the lyrics, arranges the songs. He is the genius behind, you know, Credence, all those songs. He was the, the arranger, the producer, the brain behind all of it incredible musicologist. He hears things and remembers it and then applies it. So I went, absolutely, I'll come back tomorrow. And he was very happy. He says, you know, and so I come back the next day, I go to the engineer, what are we doing today? And he's laughing. Same two songs. I went, what? <laughs> what did I do wrong? He said, no, he just likes to do it. So we did the same two songs on Tuesday, three and a half hours each song. We come back the next day, and it's the same two songs. Oh, my God. Come back Thursday, <laughs> same two songs. I mean, you're talking about a guy who gets something in two or three takes. Finally, Friday, 
And it seemed like he picked the take on Friday, take 12 or 13, he said on Friday, probably because by then it like we'd been on tour playing those songs and the energy and the spirit and the vibe on Friday at, at tw take 12 or 13 was just magical. Now I found out later he wasn't even keeping the bass or his guitar or vocals. He was just going after drum takes. Oh, wow. Unbelievable. And so then he asked me to come back the next week and I went, same two songs? He went, nope. <laughs> and I, I, I walked in one day and I saw a stack of two-inch tape, like one inch, one inch wide. I went, the engineer, what is that? And he went, backbeats. I went, what? He said, not yours. No, not yours. What he would do, and this is what he did in Creedence, if he'd hear a backbeat that was a little bit, or let's say a little bit late, if it was late, he'd cut a piece out of, ta of the tape out and stick it together with scotch tape. If it was early, he would add a little bit of tape to make it so it would land right in the right spot. He did that back in the day with Queens before anybody knew that you could cut tape. He was like creating innovative ideas to solve problems. Back in the Queens days, he took those little tape edits, those little pieces of tape, put them in an envelope and knocked on Doug Clifford's door. It's, I think he said that in his autobiography. He says, here's your backbeats. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's the type of how focused he was. And uh, that could, that record won a Grammy. And then he asked me to go on tour and I went, I'm in to play those songs. <laughs> you see, he had not played his Creedence songs for 20 years. But when yeah, I went on tour, yeah. we played the Creedence song. It was incredible. All the hits. Actually, you can't play all the hits in one show. It takes no. two shows, maybe three to play all his hits. Um, someone else that you mentioned, Smashing Pumpkins, quickly touching on them because you joined them, I think it was, uh, it was just after the Adore uh, album was recorded, I think it was, for the, for the tour, wasn't it? Um, and I, I saw an interview with Billy Corgan that once said that um, he made the mistake of hiring additional percussion players. He should have just left it to you and, and backing loops from the album, that sort of thing. Now, what's your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, they were my favourite, <laughs> one of my favourite bands at that time. I was a huge fan uh, they were the biggest alternative band in the world, bigger than Pearl Jam, Nirvana. I mean, they were huge. And they had done Gish, Siamese Dream, and Melancholy. And then they had just recorded yeah. Door, and I was the drummer. I won an audition to do the tour, which was huge. I was shocked that they had two massive percussion setups to the right of me and to the left of me uh, back there. Now, Billy didn't hear all the noise because between the percussion and him was his Marshall stacks. And the same with James Eha. But I heard all of it. And it was like a lot of chaos going on. And um, I thought, and I remember saying at one point, <laughs> early in the tour, I went to that percussionist. I said, dude, can you hear what he's doing? He says, no. And I said, dude, can you hear what he's doing? No. I says, no shit. I can hear what both of you do, and it's completely crazy. It's like two lawnmowers going at two different tempos. They were both doing creative stuff, but it was so much stuff. Uh, you know, and it had a vibe to it, but it was very intense for me because I, my job was to hold this band down in, you know, I had click track to make sure we went, played every song in tempo. So I'm playing, we have a, a structure, but when we get to these certain sections um, where, you know, I had to just it, just guess where he wanted to go. So it was a combination of structure and a lot of dynamics and improvising. 
And it was an incredible experience for me because most of the bands I played, when you want, like Bob Seger, he wants the same cymbal crash every night, same place. I mean, Billy was like that in many ways, too. He had a photographic memory, and he'd want certain things right in the same place, but then he wanted you to be able to just build. And he told me, you, what you're going to do in this band you haven't done before, which is play massive range of dynamics. And he was right. It was an incredible experience. Fantastic. Incredible experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, just touching on one last thing. I mean, it's an incredible thing to, to leave till last. I've spoken to so many people and they all say the same thing, that their way into the music business and their love of the music business and want to be a rock star came from one special night watching the TV when four long-haired guys from Liverpool appeared in front of millions of people in America. Yeah. And, um, well, you're the same. You, you, you watched that special night as well. And you got to experience what many people could only dream of when you performed at this special night, the, the night that changed America, and you got to perform on stage with Ringo and with Sir Paul and, and all the other incredible guests that came on on that night. I mean, just talk to me about how that felt playing with those guys and, and that night in general and everyone that was involved. Well, first of all, 50 years after I see the Beatles <laughs> and I ask my mom <laughs> to call them up and get me in the band, which she didn't, obviously. <laughs> and I realized what my purpose in life was before I even knew what those words meant. But I knew I want to do that. And now, 50 years later, I'm playing with them, honoring for that uh, amazing night. That was extremely emotional. But like being in the Super Bowl, I had to focus on winning the game. And so I put those emotions aside and focus song by song by song. After every song, when I do a show like that, I get the script of the show. I know who has to read the teleprompter. If the teleprompter doesn't work, I mean, look at the artist, look at the stage manager. And if the producers are the same thing. So I know when to count off. I'm very highly aware of what's going on. And I'm a problem solver in the situation like that. A lot of things can go wrong. So I have to be ready to adapt, to make the show go right. And as a matter of fact, I walked on stage the first day of, of sound check for the show, and I heard somebody say, God, thank God he's here. I'm like, who, who, who? He went, you. I went, oh, wow. And what it was was the guy was going, the producer was there. It was like, geez, I know that, you know, he seen me do Kennedy Center Honors, uh, all these big specials I did with Don was. He knows that I, I, I get the job done, you know, and I focus. And that's what I did. I just, and it was at the end that I kind of went, oh my God. And I was hanging with Paul and Ringo and they're telling us stories from Liverpool before the show, like in between rehearsal and the show. I'm hanging with Paul and Ringo talking about what it was like to be in Hamburg, you know, playing in the clubs and chords and smoking fags, as they call it. And I mean, I just couldn't <laughs> believe it. It was me, Don was, Ben Montench from Petty's band with Ringo and Paul. and. So all this stuff, you know, and Ringo edifying me when I walked out, I walked out, I had 30 minutes left, there was 30 minutes left in the show, and I had played with Dave Grohl, you know, uh, you know, uh, John Legend, and um, Alicia Keys, Joe Walsh, uh, you know, uh, Jeff Lynn from ELO, uh, John Mayer, Keith Urban, to name a few. I walk out to the audience to look for my wife, and there's Tom Hanks' wife, Ringo Starr and his wife, Paul McCartney's girlfriend, uh, John Lennon and, and, and George Harrison's widows, then Sean Penn, uh, Tom, Johnny Depp and Tom Cruise, all there in a row. They're all acknowledging <laughs> me, but Ringo's applauding and going, bravo, Kenny, bravo. I'm like, okay, this is my moment. I just played the Grammys with him the night before, right on that same stage. 
the Grammys. And two weeks before I'd done a, a thing where we honored him, I got to play double drums on four songs, which, by the way, nobody plays like Ringo. Com- <laughs> nobody, not even close. It's a unique feel and sound. Anyway, I get on my knee because everyone's looking at me in the place. of like 10, 12,000 people there. I get on my knee. And I'm trying to think of what I'm going to say to him. And he goes, that's okay, Kenny, I'm already married. <laughs> I went, no, dude, you're the reason why I play drums. You're the reason why I play rock and roll music. You and the Beatles helped me realize my purpose in life, and I just want to thank you. And that was it, and I walked away. It was an amazing moment. Wow. Absolutely incredible. And some of the names that you throw out are just absolutely just mind-boggling to think you've played with all these sorts of yeah. people. Is there anybody that, that you haven't played with that you, you wish you had have done or you, you really want to in future? Oh, well, I've played with, with Dave Grohl, but I mean, the be, being the Foo Fighters would would be so cool. Or Josh Holm from Queens of the Stone Age. I think he's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, I'd love to play. You know, I recorded an album with Tony Iommi from Sabbath and Glenn Hughes from Deep Purple. That was a band. We did it in Wales at Mammoth Studios. I mean, that... So who else... Uh, I mean, this is just touching on that quickly. Sorry to, to butt in there. I don't like to un- interrupt, but uh, Tony Iommi working with him. I've I've spoken with a few people that have worked with him over the years, and he, he's just the master of the riff, and he gets stuff done as well. I mean, what was it like working with him? Great, it was awesome. Nicest guy in the world. Humble, sweet. I yes. email him every so often. We keep talking about making another record. Um, he was amazing, but oh my god, his sound and his feel. It was unbelievable. And every riff. I remember Billy Corgan was producing two songs and I recorded on it with Billy in LA, Tony's first record. Billy comes in. I'd met Tony. We're hanging out. Billy comes in and goes right. To, Billy doesn't hang out. He goes right to business. He says, Tony, play me a lick. Wow. Billy goes, and play me another one. Billy goes, drums. We go out there. Next thing you know, we're making a record or a song off of those licks. It was insane. Every, each lick was like a, a movie theme or something. It's incredible. Absolutely yeah. bonkers. Well, Kenny, it's been an absolute pleasure Thank chatting you. with you for this last hour or so. Uh, wonderful stories you've got to tell and even more so in your book. So just plug your book one last time for us. Well, I actually have it right back here. Uh, the book is called Sex, Drums, Rock go. and Roll, The Hardest man- Hitting Man in Showbiz. And the book is basically about growing up in a small town of 3,000 people and not knowing, realizing what you, I want to do for my entire life, but not knowing how to begin to do that. And to end up where I am. It's about hard work, self-discipline, and perseverance. Nobody's born successful, and success does not land in your lap. You have to make it happen. And that's what that story is about. Absolutely. You are a driven individual, that is for sure. It's been a pleasure chatting with you, Kenny. Best of luck for everything in the future, and uh, hopefully chat with you again soon. All right, man. Take care. So there you go, the brilliant Kenny Aronoff there, a fantastic guest with some fantastic stories. I really do hope you enjoyed listening to that. 
Anyway, that's it for me then and this week's show. Thanks again for listening. Make sure you're subscribed on your podcast app so that you get all your episodes downloaded every single Monday. I've got some fantastic guests lined up to bring you over the next few weeks as well, so you want to make sure that you hit that subscribe button. And while you're there, please leave a five-star review on that podcast app as well. It really makes a big difference when it comes to exposure and, and showing it to other people and things like that. Anyway, thank you so much for your time today. I hope you'll be back next week to listen to another fantastic guest. And really, it is a good one. So until then, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.